So this morning, you can tell I, I picked a, a peach of a passage. First off, hopefully you're, you're bright, shiny, and encouraged by that lovely prophetic passage from Micah, right? But if you're like me, you've watched the news lately, and your first thought has been, how can things get any worse? Have you kind of been in that boat? You turn on the news, and you're like, what's next? You know, that, that's kind of what it feels like as we've walked through life lately with things going on in Afghanistan, people clinging to planes to try to leave the country. You've got the virus ravaging parts of the country and hospitals that are overflowing. You've got all the ways that things are happening. I can't think of another word for it than ugly. It is a very ugly time that we live in. But that brings me to my first point, and this is one that is fairly self-explanatory. I've got, this, this is huge, you're going to be shocked, but evil isn't new. Injustice isn't new. Both of them together, they're not new. Okay? This is not a shocking development. Evil and injustice aren't new. It's been going on for ages. And if you heard the text there, the first part of Micah, it is a lot of pain. And it starts here in Micah verse 1. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. That's, that's harsh, y'all. That, that is stuff that God judges pretty harshly against. And in fact, that's what God was judging against in Israel at that time. Now, we're going we're gonna to back up a hair, and we're going to put this into the cultural context. Because if there's anything I learned, it's that a text, any text of Scripture, without the context, is a pretext. Because I could have picked something fun. And in fact, I thought I should have picked a passage when Jay said I could pick whatever, and I didn't have to preach the part of Acts he was in. I was like, woo! There's, there's a whole lot of Bible up in there, y'all. But while I was on vacation, sitting in the beauty that is the mountains of Colorado and the Rampart Range... My daily reading plan hit Micah, which, you know, not, not a big deal. I'm like, okay, we'll read Micah. It's going to be great. Micah 6 is coming. What, what does God require of you, old man? But to, do just, to love justice, to do mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I'm like, great, easy message. I can preach that. And then I hit Micah chapter 2. <sighs> and then to, to top it off in one of those God ways that he just right upside the head, my Devo reading for the morning came from Charles Spurgeon. I read a thing called Morning and Evening. He's got a thought on the morning and the evening. You know what the morning passage was? Micah 2. And I kind of said, oh, yeah. okay, God, sure thing. We'll, we'll go there, maybe, if I don't think of something better before then. But I didn't, and so here we are reading a passage that I spe think speaks deeply to us because this is a major message from a minor prophet. And I love the fact that we call him minor prophets. The dude literally spoke for God, but he's minor. He's not one of the big guys. But he is, and that's why we're here. So let's take a second to see context. Because Micah was a prophet to Judah. That's the southern kingdom. To give you the big history lesson, after David was king, Solomon took over. They built the temple. Everything's great. Except Solomon had, you know, how many wives? Oh, and he built shrines to each of the gods from them, and God said that was bad. And in case you missed the memo, that led to the splitting of Israel. They were no longer one kingdom, but two. 
a northern and a southern, Israel and Judah. So Micah in his place, he's a prophet to the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom where Jerusalem and the temple were. So he's here. And at this time, there's been a great revival. In fact, it's the subtext that hits Isaiah 6 at the beginning and places it in a day and a time. Isaiah 6, the, the passage, here am I, send me, Lord. It starts with the words, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that's important because Uzziah had brought about reform. The kingdom of Judah was closer to following God than they had been in ages. But Uzziah and his pride had burnt incense to the Lord, and God told them, you know, I told you not to do that. And he had leprosy. He was going to die. And so his son has been ruling. And Jotham pursued God. But the thing is, let me, let me put this in its context for you. Jotham, his father institutes reforms, brings the nation of Judah back to God, but then sins, and his son has to take over leading because he's got leprosy. Chronicles puts it that Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father had done, except he didn't enter the temple of the Lord. That's a really big except. He is doing everything to follow God, but did he ever go into the temple? No. He didn't do the things that God had very specifically told his people to do. And so Jotham's okay. And then there's a huge but. Because it says he didn't enter the house of the Lord, but the people still followed corrupt practices. That's Jotham. He's the king in this time. Micah's prophesying. Isaiah is a contemporary of Micah. All of this is happening in the southern kingdom of Judah, in Israel. What we know is things are as bad as they can possibly be. They've gone off the rails. And I'm going to pick up my coffee for a sec. But they've gone completely off the rails. And God's punishment for them has been decreed. The prophets say it's coming utter destruction. Did the people of Israel listen? No. And then you've got Micah. And if you hear this, woe to those who dream up evil plans. Anytime you see the words woe to in scripture, do you know what that is? This is a fun fact for the day. You can tell somebody later. If you hear the words woe to from a Hebrew, they're declaring your funeral. Just, just FYI. So they're like, woe to you. Isaiah is literally using the same word, or Micah, not Isaiah. Micah is using the same words to declare a funeral for the people of Israel. But not just those. He says those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil on their bed. These people don't take a moment off of their wickedness. They're not stopping. And the problem is you see the next line. At morning light, as soon as the day is awake, they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. Now let's, let's take a step back. Today, if someone's going to break into your house, what time do you think it's going to be? You know, dark, 1, 2 a.m., something like that. Not as soon as the sun's up in broad daylight. That's the boldness of the people who are doing evil in the time of Micah. They don't try to cover it. They don't try to hide it. In fact, they're so consumed by it. It's what they think about before they go to sleep, and it's the first thing they do when they wake up. That's pretty intense. I, I don't know about you, but I have trouble thinking about anything when I go to bed, and still thinking about it when I wake up. Most of the time, I'm on another tangent. That could be because I have a lot of children, and so my brain has to kind of flip back and forth from spot to spot and child to child. 
But they're so focused on their evil, they do it. And because they have the power, no one stops them. No one says, hey, this shouldn't be happening. But it does, and it continues, and they keep going. And we see what they're doing. We see that they are coveting houses. And they don't just look at these fields and these houses and go, oh, man, that's really nice. I mean, have you ever had that moment, looked at your neighbor's house and been like, dude, Man, if I could just make my house look like that, you've probably never followed that thought up with, and so I'm going to go beat them and take it, right? You've never been there because I'm assuming not because you're still here and not a guest of the state. So that's a state of the people of Judah. They see what they want and they have the power to take it. To put this into the cultural context, Uzziah's reforms brought about a degree of prosperity Israel had never seen since Solomon was king. Now, let me, let me draw, this is a quick side text. When pe- the people of Israel followed God, you know what followed them? Prosperity and peace. When they chose not to follow God, you know what followed? God's judgment to try to bring them back to him. And we'll get to that more in a minute. But just, just see that. When God's people followed him, prosperity and peace generally followed. When they didn't, it got ugly in a hurry. And that's coming for them. Because as a... Uh, is Dr. Allen, one of my professors, said, the forefront of Israelite economic theory, there's one principle. And that principle is that the land was Yahweh's, it was God's, and that the people received it from him as a sacred trust, handed down from generation to generation, from heir to heir. That's why you get to the last part. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. For us, it's a foreign concept. But in Israel, every piece of land was given by God to that family. It wasn't one where they bought it, they sold it, even if they did. You know what happened every seven years? It came back. The year of Jubilee hit and all land was given back, all debts were paid and it was done. Land was the basis for everything they did in their economy. That's our context. We look at it, I'm like, yeah, you know, my house, I could sell it, I could do this, I could fix it up. But it's not an inalienable piece of who I am. For the Israelites, that house and that land was part of who they were because it tied them in an unbroken string to the moment that the Israelites crossed the Jordan and took the land that God had promised them. It was their social security. Loss of their inheritance meant poverty for any family that was affected that way. That's why God speaks so strongly against it. Because while evil isn't new, Sin always earns its just reward. Sin always earns its just reward. And the Israelites who were doing this, who were pushing the boundaries, well, they, they pushed the boundaries for years. Now they're so far, it's kind of that point where they're like, the boundaries here, I jumped over here, and I'm hanging out because the line's over there somewhere. Sin always earns its reward. That's why in Micah 3 it says, therefore, that's a big word, Here's your seminary theology lesson number one. If you ever see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself the question, what's it there for? Not hard, right? That's simple. It's easy. You can remember that. You save it for later, pull it out of your pocket. Yes. But what's this here for? It's because everything they had done in verse one and two, the way they had coveted, taken, stolen, oppressed, everything there leads to this. So therefore, God says, because of all this you've done, I'm now planning a disaster against this nation 
You cannot free your necks from it. Does that terrify anybody else? <laughs> that, that sentence more than anything else kind of stuck in my head as I prepped this week. Because what he's saying is it's just like you're in the hangman's noose. You can't get down. There's only one way out. That is a terrifying thought, especially terrifying in light of the fact that this is the righteous, holy God who created the universe, put every molecule of everything together, who says disaster is coming against you. You're not getting away. That, 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 that's, I'd love to make that sound better and tell you that's, no. But the truth is God is just. In fact, Micah, the entire book drips with justice. In fact, the entire term social justice, if properly applied and defined, comes from this chapter and this book that is Micah. It's not what people will tell you social justice is. Social justice is the kingdom of God taking what was God's and putting it right. Period. It's not something someone tells you where we're doing this, we're doing that, we're going to push these buttons. No. Social justice is the kingdom of God lived in power the way God designed it. It's not what somebody else conceives it. That's why the first time the word social justice was coined was by a theologian. But anything can be taken and twisted. And so what you see is a just God. Because he doesn't just say, hey, you little ants down there, my boots lifted and I got my magnifying glass. Let's go. It's not what this is. That's why they're for. Because of this heinous evil they've engaged in. Because they've broken his covenant, judgment's coming. And that, that really bites. It's horrible to preach. I'd really rather not. But all of Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for everything we need. It instructs us, it rebukes us, and it calls us to repentance. And more than anything else, you know what the prophets existed for? To call God's people to repentance. Because in this age, revival had happened, and they were falling out rapidly. In large part because the people of Israel had changed what they did, but never changed their hearts. They were making the sacrifices in the temple. They were celebrating God's feasts and his holy days. They were following the law. In fact, it sounds a whole lot like some people we know in the New Testament called the Pharisees, who, as the Apostle Paul said, he followed the law perfectly. And yet he then says, all of that righteousness was a steaming pile of junk, that's one of those, I, I would tell you, the Reformation started because Martin Luther translated Scripture the way it reads. Not necessarily true, but it makes sense because the word Paul uses there is not polite, it's not nice, and we don't say it. But he says everything he did is that. The Israelites have all of this outward righteousness going. They look perfect. But Micah 1 and 2. Their hearts, they covet, they take, they deprive, they oppress. They're doing everything God said not to do while doing all the forms and functions that God said to do. And they thought it made them okay. And that, my friends, is terrifying. Because I don't know about you, but I see myself in these pages. Because I am really good at looking right. I have a talent for it. 
<clears throat> in fact, when I was in college, I almost got kicked out of Sterling College because I had a talent for looking good while everything else was as ugly as it could be. And that was my little secret over here until God in his mercy made it public. And yet, you know what I was at the time when God made my sin public? I was mad. And I was really mad. And I held on to that for a long time until I realized why. Because the same just God who demands punishment for sin is also rich in mercy. And that is the good news. And that's why I preached all of Micah 2 this morning. If you noticed in the passage, the first 11 verses, man, let me just go curl up under, yes, I am an ordained Southern Baptist. But no, I'm not wearing a tie and I'm not sweating profusely yelling about how you're going to hell this morning. I know that's a stereotype. <laughs> let's, let's all confront that now together. But really, that is the truth. We are all destined for the reward of our sin. That's why when we say sin earns its reward, did a verse pop to your head? Any of the Iwanas kids have a verse pop to your head? Anybody who knows the Romans Road have a verse crank up right there? I did. All of a sudden, I thought of Paul in Romans 6. Or what does he say? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now, this is where the gospel comes to bear in Micah. We see the judgment. It's looming, it's coming, and God tells them they cannot escape it. But there is more coming. And see, the nice part from the outside, we can look back at history and we know what's coming. Because you know what's about to happen to the kingdom of Judah? A new world power was being born. And they were the meanest, toughest, roughest son of a guns on the planet. And they did things no one else would have even thought of. They were the Assyrian Empire. They were coming. They'd already taken over Israel. Israel had seen its day. And if you read the context in Micah 1, he prophesied about that first. And you saw Samaria and all of the northern kingdom fall. And then he's preaching to his people in Judah. That sin leads to death. And he's calling them out on their sin. Because the one thing we know, here's the perk of sitting outside history. We're not sitting there as Israelites today going, yeah, whatever, Micah. Because in a sec, we'll see, that's what they said. Today, we have the perk of history looking back. We know it was coming except for a king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the king after a guy named Ahaz. Ahaz was Jotham's son, and let's say the apple fell ridiculously far from the tree. Because Ahaz, as Scripture tells us in Chronicles, he set up those high places and other shrines and idols, and he sacrificed to them. And then it tells us the big sin. He even sacrificed his own children to their God. That was the most despicable practice that God tried to wipe out of the promised land. That's literally why he told the Israelites to do what they did when they took the land. It's not one where God is mean, God is vindictive. No, God is just. And if we choose to follow the path of sin, his justice is going to catch us. But if we choose otherwise, it's a big difference. Because as Romans tells me, there's death or there's life. The choice is before you today. What do you choose? Last time I checked, the guy who said that first was a dude named Joshua. He told the Israelites to choose who they were going to serve, if they were going to choose life or death. 
But this is what's going on in Micah. The people are coming to judgment. And this reveals one truth that has not changed no matter what, no matter when, no matter where. As a people, every single one of us is inclined to ignore reproach. We're inclined to ignore reproach, right? You don't like to hear it from someone. Any parents out there in the room say, preach, brother, I hear you. You live that life, you know? At that point, I joked that uh, people who ignore the total depravity of mankind have never had a toddler. Just saying, that's, that's free to you this morning. But we're inclined to ignore reproach. Here's what Scripture says in verse 6. They tell Micah, quit your preaching. They shouldn't preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. Do you hear the pride and the arrogance and the absolute ignorance of God's reproach? They've heard what Micah had to say. And their answer is, dude, just shut up. We don't want to hear what you have to say. We're done. Quit your preaching, they preach. You shouldn't preach these things. Shame won't overtake us. In other words, surely not us. Don't talk that way. Can you put yourself in the people of Israel's shoe? When you hear God's reproach, what's your answer? Oh, it's not me. It's like, that's not me. That's those other people over there. You know, it's those guys across the street or wherever. Pick your poison. Cross the tracks. You know, whatever you want to say. It's really easy for us to point at other people. But the truth is that the arrow of God's judgment points right here first. It's one of the things I've said for years. I can't preach a passage unless God's preached to me first. We're inclined to ignore reproach. When God says something, it's easy to ignore it because, oh, not me. But the truth is when God says something universal, it's meant for you too. And it's not lifted out of its context. It's really easy for us to pick a verse that's going to feel good. Like I can tell you, every year at graduation, there is one part of the prophets that gets lifted and used and abused completely devoid of context or meaning. It's that simple truth that we all love to hear that I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Yee dog. Sounds great. I love it. I love it when it's plastered on all the mugs and books and everything else we could possibly sell. Completely lifted of its cultural context that Jeremiah was telling the people of Israel after, after, like our first verses of Micah here today, that, hey, God is not going to take you back to the promised land. No, you're not being delivered now. You're going to be dead before that happens. But don't worry, your kids, kids, kids will see it. And God says this to them. Sorry, I'm all bright and encouraging this morning. I, I can't help it. It's, it's the text I'm in. But that's where it is. Because the people of Israel, do you know some of the words used to describe Israel throughout Scripture? Let's, let's see if these resonate with you. In Exodus... God tells them that they are a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked. I love that word, stiff-necked. I don't tend to use that as a word of reproach for people. I tend to follow more like Ezekiel, who says that they are hard-hearted, hard-headed people. And he doesn't mince words. The whole house of Israel is hard-headed and hard-hearted, and they will not want to listen to you because they don't want to listen to me. That's God's words for his prophets. They don't want to listen to you because they don't want to listen to me. And it really sounds familiar if you live in my shoes. I don't want to listen to the hard stuff God says. 
it's a lot easier to polish it up and say, man, God, God's plan is for me to be happy and healthy and have a whole boatload of money and all the stuff I really want. And I could smile pretty, but I haven't spent that much money on dental work. I apologize. God's plan is not for you to live your best life now. God's plan is simple. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're guaranteed one thing. At the end of days, you're sitting there with Jesus. You are eternal in existence. If we don't, the problem is where we wind up. If we don't follow Christ, there is also an eternity, and it turns people off. But the gospel is such a way that you have to see the black and white distinctions. There's no white, the resurrection, the good news, if there wasn't the bad news of sin and death and punishment. You can't divorce the two. When we do, we wind up with the reaction, oh, oh, not me. That would never be me. Yes, it is. And here's the hard part. Just like God had to break through my heart, it's ours this morning. We are all sinners. I'm sorry to break the news to you. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm an ordained pastor, and I am a sinner. I have issues. I have a whole boatload of issues, as a matter of fact. We can talk about those later. If you sign a contract that says you're not going to tell others, we'll totally... No, I'm just kidding. I'd be happy to tell you where I've been dumber than a box of rocks because I am a human being, and my heart is inclined towards wickedness from the moment I wake up. And in case you missed the memo, that's also Scripture. The human heart is desperately wicked. All the things God tells us about people, we want to ignore it because we're hard-headed and hard... Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry, church. Here's the truth. You're human. You're stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and hard-headed. I love you, though. It makes it better if I smile, right? No? <laughs> but here's the best part of the truth in this passage. God's judgment is timely. God's judgment is timely. What do I mean by that? I mean what Micah says. God asks, house of Jacob, should it be asked, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these the things he does? Now, as a real quick disclaimer, how long have the people of Israel been in deep, hardcore sin? Anybody care to guess a number of years? I'll, I'll help you. It's, it's not decades. In fact, it, it's more like centuries that they have chosen to completely disregard what God had to say. And there have been people who've listened and tried to drag them all back. But if God's judgment was such that he were vindictive and mean, when would it happen? Right away. It's the old concept of the policeman God sitting up in heaven waiting. You send, boom, lightning bolt, baby. But does that happen? Does that happen? No, because God's judgment is timely. He is patient. He is patient with us. And as the psalmist reminds us, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Micah here is rhetorically asking if he is impatient and reminding the Israelites of God's covenantal faithfulness. Now, the reason I say that is because the Israelites have broken the covenant contract repeatedly. In fact, that's why you end up with a prophet like Hosea. If you know Hosea's story, God told him to go marry a prostitute. And then, in all the time that Hosea was with his wife, Gomer, 
You know how many times she left and he took her back and she left and he took her back and she left and he took her back and finally she left, was enslaved and he went and he bought her back. Why? To show us God's covenant faithfulness. Because as I said, we're hard-headed, we're hard-hearted and stiff-necked. And just like the Israelites, we had to be bought back. We had to be bought back because we couldn't do it on our own because we don't want to listen to what God has to say. We'd rather listen to what someone else says, God says. Because here's the number one truth about anything we do in Scripture. It doesn't matter who's here. It doesn't matter who's there. If you can't read it for yourself in the words of Scripture that God gave you, it is not his truth, full stop. Everything that someone says, God says, it has to be squared out with Scripture or God didn't say it. The second thing you have to know is everything God said happens inside of a wider context. If you can't read that verse and the one surrounding it and have it still make sense with what you want to say, God probably didn't say it that way. And the last thing, if it doesn't make sense in the cultural context and the passage around it, it's really not the interpretation we can take. Because you can pull a verse of Scripture to say anything you want. In fact, my personal favorite is saying that even Scripture says there is no God. But if you read that passage, the two words right before it, or three words, or four, man, I can't even count. Only a fool says there is no God. Context matters. And as we see in Israel, sin always grows. Micah 8 says, Recently my people have risen up like an enemy, stripping off the splendid robe from those who are passing through confidently. Like those returning from war, you force women out of their homes. Take my blessing from their children forever. God's calling out the Israelites and their behavior, saying they're an enemy who literally robs people. It displayed their dignity in that robe, but God's taking it away. And again, we see the exile coming for Judah. These are the same words right here that people would use to evict someone from their land. Coming up in verse 10. Get out. Get up. All of this is coming to a head because we like to hear what we want to hear, not what God says. We want to hear what we want to hear. And the Israelites had tons of those prophets. In fact, my favorite is verse 11. If you're looking for a condemnation of someone who preaches, this is the toughest one there is outside of Jesus's words about what you can do if you preach something other than the gospel. And personally, I prefer not a giant rock around my neck in the ocean. But Micah 11 says, if a man comes and utters empty lies, or in the ESV, it's wind and lies. And Micah's sarcasm is on full display. I'll preach to you about wine and beer. He'd be just the preacher for this people. We want to hear what we want to hear. And we want people to tell it to us. In fact, the Israelites wanted a religion that satisfied their self-indulgence, not one that demanded righteousness and holiness. Because the drumbeat of the entire Old Testament is summarized in Leviticus. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But the Israelites didn't want to be holy. They wanted what they wanted. And unfortunately, that's where we live. We want what we want. And as Paul advised Timothy, the people of Judah have heaped up for themselves teachers who will 
tickle their ears with what they want to hear. The word of God, if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, you're not listening. I'm sorry, that's the truth that scripture lays out. The word of God is meant to bring us the reproach and the rebuke that leads us to repentance. Because the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They'll turn away from hearing the truth and turn aside to myths. What Paul says there is literally an outgrowth of what the Israelites have done from time immemorial. Remember, Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He's gone for not that long. And what's happening downtown? Down at the bottom of the mountain, they're having themselves a big honking shindig. And my, my man Aaron, the priest, tells his brother when he comes back down, well, they gave me their gold. I put it in the oven and out popped a cow. I, I don't know how it happened, man. Lamest excuse in all of Scripture. Okay, FYI, we all know it doesn't work that way. But that's the way we operate, left to our own devices. We want to hear what we want to hear. And God's word is a call to repentance. Because false prophets are prophets who bring only good news. Micah balances that and we get to those final two verses. I'm cruising. We're rolling. I picked a lot of text, but I want you to hear it, church. It's not the end. Because God broke every barrier to bring us back to him. I mentioned Hosea. That's the thing. Our righteousness can't be enough. Our righteousness isn't enough. We need what only God can do. And so with our background in seeing history, we know Jesus and thus the cross. Jesus is in every syllable of these last two verses of Micah 2. We see the Messiah in every way because the people of Judah didn't want to hear about God's judgment and they were going to ignore it. And still God gives them the two best stinking passages from any prophet in all of Scripture. I say that because they're my favorite, but because of what they mean. Let's read them real quick. I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I'll collect the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its pasture. It will be noisy with people. And one who breaks open the way will advance before them. They'll break out, pass through the city gate, and leave by it. The king will pass through before them. The Lord as their leader. Do you see why I said those are two of the best prophetic verses in all of Scripture? Because we know what Jesus did. We know that on the cross, he finally said, it is finished. And at that moment, do you know what happened in the temple church? Did you know the veil that separated God from man split top to bottom? Nothing that man could do. Something only God could do. Because until that point in time, every single person was separated from God by our sin. But one who broke the way through for us came. And he made a way. You see why I get passionate about that church? Because that is the good news. Your sin is not the end. Your failures are not the end. They're a beginning. Because we serve a God who doesn't leave broken people alone. We sang it. No matter what you see in the world around us, Jesus is mine. And church, if you believe that this morning, we have more hope than any person should have a right to. Because yes, the days are ugly. They were ugly then. It hasn't changed. 
but we have more good news than they did because Jesus is mine. I'm going to quote one more chunk from one of my favorite commentators. Uh, He said, theologically, the remnant theme is important because it mediates the tension of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. The Abrahamic covenant guaranteed Israel an everlasting status in God's program of redemption, while the second, the Mosaic, it threatened a sinful nation with death. God's true prophets revealed the theological tension by preaching a doctrine that he would preserve a remnant of the Israelites through the judgment associated with the curses of the covenant. The remnant theme testifies to God's faithfulness in keeping his covenant promises, and it displays his great mercy because he does not remain angry with rebellious Israel forever. And so in the New Testament, the remnant of Israel is not displaced or eliminated, but stands united with those Gentiles or wild olive branches grafted into Abraham's tree, called to be one people of God. There's a sense in which Jesus the Messiah is himself the ultimate remnant of Israel because he fulfilled the law of Moses as the lone righteous Hebrew. And as the firstborn from the dead, he is the head of the church. When Danny says that, do you see what that verse, can you go back to Micah 13 there for me? Actually, it's at the last, yeah, it's the next slide, just kidding. God's action demands a response. Now go to my verse, there we are. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord as their leader. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And church, do you see it in Micah? Our God broke through to make a way for you and for me to be right with him. That's why the gospel in a nutshell comes in Corinthians. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And so church, this morning, your action is necessary. We all have a choice. That's why I place the emphasis on leader. You can follow a leader or you can ignore them. They're still going to lead. Jesus does not force us to follow. We have to choose. And we have a choice as who we choose to follow. You can look at the mean, vindictive God that some people talk about or the God who's abounding in love and whose steadfast faithfulness to his people never left them alone. So this morning, church, I'm calling you to what I think God called me to. Repent of the ways that you want to say, it's not me. God's talking about those other people. No, he's talking about us. It's our sin that demanded Jesus die. But it's also our sin that God forgives. Because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this morning, church, what are you holding on to? What is it that you don't want to hear God talk about that he's been pricking your heart with? It's generally that pet little sin that we hang on to with a clenched fist that we don't want to let go of. The reason I know is because God had to beat me upside the head and shoulders. What was I holding on to? What did I not want to listen to him about? Because it's easy to do because we're a stiff-necked, hard-headed, hard-hearted people, but he still speaks. What are you going to do with it this morning, church? That's my question to you because the best news is that when Jesus said it is finished, it literally led to a demolition of all that came before and your opportunity to follow our leader 
past death, the last enemy that was defeated, or to stay where we are. And the truth is God is calling you today. Repent. If you don't know Jesus Christ, simply believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord. Not just that he is a God, but that he is the God who is in charge of your life. And you know what Paul says? You will be saved. Not maybe, not might, you will be saved. And for those of us who believe, just like the Israelites, God is calling us back to him and his righteousness. Repent of whatever it is we're holding on to more dearly than Christ and chase after him with all of your heart because he is enough. He's more than enough. He's beyond enough. And his call has never quit coming for you. But church, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are rich in mercy and abounding in love, that your faithfulness never leaves us alone and never forsakes us, but that you kept coming, you kept chasing, and you kept calling. This morning, I pray that you would call us to repentance as we need it, that you would break our hearts for the things we have held on to as more dear than you. If we don't know you, Father, I pray that you would stir in our hearts that your spirit would move in such a way that we will know you, who you are, and the glory of your resurrection. But above all this morning, Father, I pray that you would not leave us the same. We've heard your truth, and it demands a response, and we must change. Bring us to yourself. Change our hearts as only you can do, because it's not a choice we can make, but a choice we can respond to your leading. Work in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.